This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. All right, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have some really, really cool dudes that will hand you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, then that Bible is yours. You can keep it. If you do own a Bible, then you can leave it, right? All right, so raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We'll go over a couple of quick announcements, then we're going to dive in. We've got a lot to cover. Uh, everybody say VBS. 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 <laughs> this week is vacation Bible study. Um, if you haven't signed up already, Hit somebody up so you can get your kids registered for a vacation Bible study. Um, it's going to be real cool. It's going to be all week school. Vacation Bible school. That's what I said. You know, y'all need to clean your ears out. All right? Shoot. And then so, so it's all week from 530 to 8 o'clock. If you've been missing out what's been going on on Thursdays here, we've been diving in on some classes Thursdays and Wednesdays. Um, Pastor Dave has been doing a, a wonderful class on finances, which last week was off, but this week will be back on on Wednesday for those that have signed up already for it. All the other classes are canceled, so we can focus on VBS, <clears throat> but starting next week, we'll be back into the other classes. Oh, I think that's all I have to say, but all right, that being said, let's move on. So if you could go ahead and put that first slide up. Last week, we started teaching on, on, a, on, a, on a topic called spiritual blindness. And, and, and this week, we're going to be doing the same thing. Me and Aaron sit down talking about it. We're like, man, this thing should be preached together. So it's like part one and part two. It's like a series inside of a series, right? So we have this timeline that's, being, that's been covered throughout this whole uh, past couple of weeks. In Mark 8, 11 through 13, where um, we're talking about the Pharisees' spiritual blindness, then 14 through 21, disciples' spiritual blurriness, um, and which you'll, you'll see us go into it today. Uh, we got the illustration of physical healing of blindness, 18, 8, 22 to 26. Then Jesus heals spiritual blindness, 27 through 30, and Jesus heals spiritual blurriness, 8, 31, going into to 9, 1. So what we're going to do right now is we're, we're going to stand together and I will read the word of God and you guys will follow along on with me inside your books. The reason why we stand because we want this part to be set apart from everything else. This is the word of God. This is God's word. This is what he says. And I don't want there to be any confusion. So we'll all stand together and honor the word of God. And we're going to read. And oh, we're going to be reading a grip. All right. We're going from, verse, from chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to nine and one, all right? Um, we'll, we'll be using the ESV for someone that's on your phone and you want to um, follow in with us, else not, whatever you have is good. But I'll start reading. Starting at, 10, at 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, 
but they looked like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him would the Son of Man also be ashamed of when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your intent for us to have these scriptures and read these scriptures, Lord. I pray that you will plant them deeply into our hearts, Lord, and allow them to sprout and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. One of the things I like, I like here is, um, is a, is we'll t we take the time to, to, to preach and we'll go through books of the Bible. And we like to go through that book and break it down verse by verse all the way through. So and we'll, we'll spend a grip of time just, just going through a particular book. And we want to get every single thing that God has inside that section of Scripture, inside that book. We want to draw the whole thing out. Because sometimes if, if, if you're just hearing topical messages after topical message after topical message, what happened, there are a lot of important, vital things that are missed along the way. So what we like to do is just break it all out, break it all out, break it all out. But what we're doing with the book of Mark is a little bit different. Now, we're preaching the book of Mark narratively, right? The, the good thing about preaching Narratively, because a lot of times people don't look at the Bible as this grand narrative. They end up looking at the Bible and they think most of the things in the Bible is just about me, about me, about me, what I can do, and it's about me. But when you step back and look at the grand narrative of Scripture, what you see is the Bible is a story about God, not about me. 
This is a story about God. That's the grand narrative of scripture. He creates and then his creation rebels. And the rest of the story is about everything he's doing to redeem his creation back into himself. That's the grand narrative of scripture. Right? And sometimes we need to back up and look at the big picture to understand what's really going on here. This isn't a story about me. It's a story about God and me in relation to God's story. Understand what I'm saying? So that's why we like, we like to preach narratively. So we end the book of Mark, and, and as, we, as we see, Jesus steps into his, his earthly ministry, and he's displaying his kingdom and his kingship through perfect acts of miracles. People are being healed left and right, but when they're being healed, they're being healed perfectly. Demons are being cast out. They've never seen this happen before, but demons are being cast out. All these wonderful and beautiful things are happening. And people is being healed and delivered and healed and delivered and healed and delivered just instantly. Like people that were born with ailments, their ailments are instantly gone and they're perfect physically. But then we get to the section of scripture where we see something that it's a little bit different here. But Jesus comes to this blind man, and he heals this blind man, but he does it in two stages. Now, this is the only time you see this in Scripture. It's the first time you see it and the only time you see it. You never see again where Jesus heals somebody, and he, and he does it twice for it to take full. As a matter of fact, all the way up until this time, we've seen crazy stories of healings, crazy things happening left and right, all these healings, and all of them were perfect. So the healing isn't a brand new deal. So the primary, fo the primary focus here isn't about the healing in of itself, but instead the purpose of the how, the how he healed them. That's what's the primary focus here. Not the healing of itself. It's good that he got healed, but the primary focus here is how it went down. I've, I've seen people butcher this. I, Aaron was talking about it last week. I've seen people say that, okay, the reason why it went down like that because the, the blind man didn't have enough faith, so Jesus had to do it again for it to take. And I, I even been at a situation where I was visiting a church one time and, and the guy was preaching and at the end of his preaching, he was going to do um, healing. And I remember he was, he was healing this one person. He was praying over this one person. She was in a wheelchair. And he gathered everybody around and he's like, well, she's going to walk. Right after we're done, she's going to walk. And he started praying over her. He tells the people, the, the guys around her, to lift her up out of her wheelchair because healing is going to come upon her and she won't need the wheelchair anymore. So the people start to lift her up. But then he's like, all right, let her go because she's about to walk. And they're like, no. <laughs> she's about to drop. And he's like, she's, you got to have faith. Let her go. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm telling you. Her legs have no strength inside of it. She's about to drop. So he lets them sit her down again. He says, let me do it again. Because even Jesus had to pray over a blind man twice. And he comes and he lays his hand on her to pray over again. Needless to say, she did not walk that day. And at the end of the day, he's like, well, it's because her faith wasn't strong enough. See, it's easy to think 
when you read this text, it's easy to think that Jesus needs a second attempt to get it right. Or, or, or it's easy to think that there were some other outside hindrances that, that, that messed up the first attempt. But if you're going to look at this and you're going to look at what's going on, we have to first reflect on the perfection of the one doing the healing. We have to look at Jesus. This helps us to get a little bit of clarity here. This is the person through everything that was created was created. God said, let there be light, and Jesus like, bam, there we go. Every single thing that was created is created through him. He is perfect in all of his ways. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. There's no way in the world that he messes up the first time around. As a matter of fact, it's not even about whether or not that person had enough faith. The reality of it, a lot of people that Jesus healed in the beginning of his ministry wasn't making professors of faith. A lot of things he did just to show who he was. Even this blind guy right here, he didn't come up and say, yo, heal me. That's not what happened. The crowd threw him up. They were like, yo, the healer is here. Heal him. And they throw him up, and he's like, all right, let's he didn't come up saying, I believe in you. A lot of times when Jesus healed people, it had nothing to do with whether or not they had enough faith, but a lot of times it did. And he would turn around and say, man, your faith has made you whole. But the primary thing at the end of the day isn't about them, it's about who he was. So we're going to look into this, and we're looking at it with the person that's doing the healing is perfect in all ways and all powerful in all ways that don't need you in order to do what he wants to do, then it's this thing is intentional. He's intentionally doing this. See, the way he healed this man wasn't about, it wasn't about the man. It wasn't about the crowd because they walk away from the crowds. The way he healed this man had everything to do with his disciples. He led the man and his disciples away from the crowds. You know the disciples are there because later on they all leave and go to Philippi. thing here is that he wanted his disciples to hear the man's reply to the first stage of healing. This is another thing you've never seen happening before with Jesus. You never hear Jesus heal somebody and say, how's your arm now? Is it good? All right, cool. You never hear him say, okay, Go home, your faith has made your daughter healed. If she's not healed, come back and talk to me about it. He never asks questions about whether or not the healing went or didn't go any other time. This is the only time after he heals the person, he turns around and asks, how do you see? Why? He wants his disciples to hear the reply to that question. He's discipling them right now. In order to understand the motivation for this two-stage healing, we got to go back into last week. So I'm going to read the scriptures that we was covering last week so we can understand the this, this stage here and stuff. And, and all I'm doing right now at this point, it's like, it's like watching your favorite sitcom, whatever it is, and, it's like, and, and that today is done. It's like, man, that was so good. I want to see it next, the next one. The next one coming, what they do is they start off with last week and enroll you into this week, all right? So that's what I'm doing right here. So I'm going to read chapter 8, verses 14 through 20. Now, here's the setting. Here's the backdrop here. 
the disciples have just seen Jesus feed like stadiums full of people, right? I mean, imagine US, US Airways, right? With enough food for probably a one, per, one family. But he turns around and uses that amount of food to feed practically an entire stadium of people. Other things end up happening, and then he does it again. Both times, the first time they walk away with 12 baskets of food. The second time they walk away with seven baskets of food afterwards. With only a small amount of food. So let me start on. Now, uh, uh, so then they start heading off to Philippi, to Caesarea Philippi. They jump inside the boat to go to Bethsaida. And when they jump inside the boat to go to Bethsaida, and that, even though they had like seven baskets of bread, they forget to bring the bread with them. And then, they, so they're in the boat, and they realize that, oh, man, I only got one loaf of bread. So this is where we start off at, 14. Now, they have forgotten to bring the bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, Jesus, cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that, he had, that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. Then he said to them, do you not yet understand? Then we go on to verse 22, and you see that they, they get out of the boat, and then they're pressured by the crowds. And the first healing he does, he goes out of the city and does it privately with just him, the blind man, and his disciple. And he uses it to teach them an object lesson about themselves. He's like, man, all right, we're in the boat. I'm talking to you guys. You guys aren't getting it yet. Then they get out, and they're trying to do a healing. And he's like, all right, all right, you come with me. Y'all come with me. And he comes to the side and stuff, and, and they go out the city, and he does this healing. And he's doing this object lesson about them. He's saying to them, listen, you see me, but not with clarity. You see me with your natural eyes, but your spiritual vision is cloudy, it's blurred, it's impaired. Now Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. Thus, he, he fully lived in and operated in both the natural and the spiritual world simultaneously, which is the way that we were meant to live, where we operated in both the natural and the spiritual simultaneously. But he knows that we are suffering from spiritual blindness. So everything that Jesus did in the natural was communicating or reflecting a spiritual reality. It wasn't just about the natural. None of it was. When he's healing someone that's physically sick, he's not just trying to say, hey, I can heal the physical sick. He's saying, I also heal the spiritually sick. When he's bringing someone that's physically dead back to life, he's not just saying, look, I can do that. He's also saying, I bring back to life the spiritually dead. 
When he feeds thousands of people with food, he's not just saying, hey, look, I can make food. He's also saying, you know my nickname is the bread of heaven, right? And I love that nickname because bread is, is something that's symbolic to food, the substance of life that we need to live physically. But he's, his nickname is the bread of heaven. Basically, he's saying, I am spiritual food. Me, in and of myself, I am spiritual food. And when he heals physically blind people, he's saying, man, I give sight to the spiritually blind and the physically blind. This is my kingdom. My kingdom overlaps both the natural and the spiritual. You see physically and spiritually in my kingdom. He's constantly using metaphors to explain spiritual truths by going from a natural perspective. He'll say, all right, the kingdom of heaven is sort of like a God looking for some money that he lost. Or a God that's planting. I mean, he, because he knows that we don't see spiritually, that we are spiritually blind. So he had to make these metaphors from the natural sense so we can catch it in the spiritual sense. See, the blind man, after being healed, the first stage of healing, the blind man was able to make out that he was seeing people, though not clearly. That's why he's like, well, I see people, but it sort of look like trees. My vision is blurry. But I can tell that there's people there. I just don't see the details. The disciples were able to tell that Christ was the one that they should follow, but yet wasn't seeing in the clar- with clarity of spirit who exactly was this one they was following. That, that was obvious to them. Like, the reason why he was following him is because he came to them and said, you should follow me. The reason why they kept following him because it was like, yo, yeah, we should follow him. But they still wasn't seeing with clarity of spirit who the him was. It wasn't getting it yet. It's like many religions that we see nowadays. They'll, they'll acknowledge that Jesus is someone of influence. Oh, he's probably a good um, Messiah or a good teacher. They acknowledge these good aspects of him. They acknowledge that he's someone that you should learn from without acknowledging who he actually is. Here's the deal. Their lack of clarity was in part a result of their own hardness of hearts, though. In 8 and 17, he points this out. He's saying, do you have eyes but you don't see? You, you perceive but you don't understand? You have ears but you don't hear? But in the midst of all of that, he says, is your heart hardened? Now, they've seen the evidence. They've seen the signs. They've been with them. They've seen him feed the thousands of people. They've seen him walk on top of water and speak to the ocean and sea, and they obey. They've seen these things. I mean, he fed thousands of people not once, but twice in front of, before this thing has happened. He wanted them to trust him, not the bread. It's not about how much bread you got. It's about who is with you, who has you. He wanted them to trust him. 
He wanted them to trust the resource giver, not the resources. The problem was they didn't understand his identity. Their vision was blurred. They were mistaking him for just another resource. Something to think about. What does it look like to not just see Christ as another resource for your use, but to see him as the resource giver, giving you resources for his use? Think about that. For the disciples to see this constant display of power reflecting the reality of his kingdom and authenticity of his kingship, but yet not allow the implication of these truths to impact their lives in such a way that it produces faith and trust as a side effect of understanding his identity was to reject the truth at some level, which means that God himself, who is the truth, was being rejected at some level, which in turn exposes a hardness of heart. Listen, what Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's also saying to us. You got to understand that you read the scriptures, you see the lessons that he's teaching to his disciples. What Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's also saying to us. We're his disciples. So let me just say what I just said a few minutes ago, but let me tweak it to us. For us to see God's constant display of power in our lives, whether through the miracle of salvation, the beauty of creation, various different works in our lives or people around us, and most of all through his grace, to see that power as it's reflecting the reality of his kingdom and authenticity of his kingship, but yet not allow the implication of these truths to impact our lives in such a way that it produces faith and trust as a side effect of understanding his identity. We are rejecting the truth at some level, which means that God himself, who is the truth, is being rejected at some level, which in turn exposes the hardness of our own hearts. And that's just catching up to speed from last week. So let's move on. They healed the blind man, and after, or he heals the blind man, and after he heals the blind man, they start moving on to Caesarea Philippi. He's teaching them this, this lesson about spiritual blindness. Now, though Jesus and his disciples move on from the point of the blind man's healing, the lesson on spiritual blindness doesn't stop. It doesn't stop here. It starts here. He starts by showing them a picture of a man that by the grace of God is no longer blind, but his vision is blurry and needs to continue to rely on the grace of God for progressive clarity. Sort of like that already, but not yet, Bill. Complete healing is done, but the full manifestation of it is stretched out till an appointed time. The problem with being blind is that you miss out on the beauty of what you can't see, which has a drastic impact on what you chase after in this life, and there are more ways to see than just with physical eyes. So here's the kicker. When Christ is the object of beauty that you can't see, then you can't truly see yourself because you, because who you are is wrapped up in him. When he's a person that's just struggling to see all the time, you will be struggling to see who you really are. 
everything about you, everything about what you're created for, your purpose and everything is all wrapped up in him. That's why when people come to me and they're like, man, I'm just trying to find out my identity. I'm just trying to find out who I am. I'm, I'm just seeking to find out my identity, who I am. And I'm saying, dude, stop seeking for you. Dive deep into God. Seek after God. Find out who he is. Dive deeply into there. And as you get closer to God, as you start to see him with more clarity, what will happen is as a side effect is that you will start to see yourself with more clarity. You will start to see who you are and your role in his story. So with that in mind, as they leave from healing the blind man, they start going to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus poses a question to his disciple. He asks them. Again, the lesson is still going. He asks them, who do people say that I am? Now, they start rattling off names. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say prophets of old come back. And Jesus is like, okay, okay, okay. But y'all are my inner circle. Y'all the only people that know how much food we have when we fed all those thousands of people. Y'all the only ones that see me walking on the water. Y'all the only ones that heard me speak to the ocean and the sea and the sky and the air and seen that they respected and obeyed me. So let me ask y'all a question. Who do you say that I am? And you could, there's, there's silence there. And then Peter speaks up, the only one. He says, you're the Christ. Now, Mark, it just says you're the Christ. But when you read the, the other Gospels, they add on. They say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the promised Messiah. That's who he is. That's who the Christ was, the, the promised Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, the context and the backdrop here is huge. Because if you understand the context of when the, the, the book of Mark is found. It's, at, it's found during the time when Nero was on the throne and Nero was claiming to be the son of God. And they have been searching for the Messiah for a while. There's been a couple of people that has risen up and people thought that he, they were the Messiah. And they even said, yeah, I am the Messiah. But the same thing happened to all of them. They got killed and the disciples got killed too. So for, for, for Peter to, to, to come to this reality, Jesus himself and Luke, he makes it clear that the only way that Peter can actually see this as an actual reality is that the Father had to reveal it to him. Flesh and blood couldn't. That's the only way it'll make sense to you. God opened your eyes and gave you a revelation of who I actually am. So now that you are acknowledging who I am, you're acknowledging that I am the Christ, you're acknowledging that I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for, let me tell you about the Messiah. And keep in mind, these people have been studying and reading Old Testament scriptures for a long time as they're waiting for the Messiah. This wasn't the first time they heard the word or anything like that. But yet still, he says, I need to explain to you what this looks like. You acknowledge it on the Messiah. Let me explain to you what that looks like. The Messiah must suffer many things. Many things. As a matter of fact, he will be rejected by the elders and the priests. As a matter of fact, he will be killed. This is the Messiah. 
In verse 32, it says that he said it to them plainly. Normally, he's speaking in parables, but right, right here, he's, I'm not speaking in parables. I'm being straightforward with you. Things is going to get crazy. I will suffer, be rejected, and get killed. And this was going contrary to their vision of what a Messiah would look like. All these sects of people was living during this time that, 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 of Jewish people that was waiting for the Messiah. And even though they had different views, the one view they all had in common was that when the Messiah came, he was going to overthrow the government. He was going to do this, this violent thing and knock everybody out. But here it is. You're telling me that the Messiah is going to suffer be rejected and killed? Now, though Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, and despite the fact that when Jesus told him what's going to happen, he said, these things must happen, Peter, Mr. Smarty Pants, pulls him over to the side and rebukes him. and says, nah, that's not going to happen. That's the one area you got it wrong at. Now, you got to understand the nature of this word rebuke here. The nature of this word rebuke is the same nature of the word rebuke when talking about casting out demons. Peter rebuked him harshly. The type of rebuke when casting out a demon. So you got to understand this. Catch this. Jesus wasn't lining up with what his vision of the Messiah would look like. And we do this all the time. When God doesn't line up with our concept of who he is, we rebuke him with our actions of rejection, like a demon being cast out. Now, my God wouldn't do that. My God is really nice all the time. My God wouldn't say you can't do this. My God would let us do everything that we want to do, how we want to do it. That's how my God is. So we reject what you're saying. Like they're casting out some type of demon or something. That's the society that we live in right now. That's what we do a lot of times ourselves. But Jesus' response to this is epic. Love it. The way that Mark lays it out is that he notices that the disciples, the other disciples are looking while this is going on. And Jesus turns around, he looks at them, then he looks at Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, this is interesting because in Luke 4 and 13, this, they're talking about inside the garden, I mean, when, when Jesus was being tempted, and when, when Satan leaves, it said that he left, Waiting for an opportune moment to strike again. And how crazy is it that the time that he would strike again would be when the first person that he called to the ministry acknowledged exactly who he is. This is when Satan steps in. The first thing that he does is stuff Satan's attempt to take advantage of an opportunity. And the second thing he does, all in one sweeping motion, is address the horse that Satan came riding in on, which was the carnality of Peter's heart. He says, Satan, let me stop you right here. Then he says, Peter, man, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, on the things of man instead. And he doesn't stop there. 
He dives into the heart of everything that Peter is doing. And that's the thing about God. He doesn't take long routes around. He'll dive straight into your heart. And Jesus continues to speak to the heart of Peter's action. But when he does this, by this time, crowd has started to build up. So he, he calls the disciples in. And he says to cry, y'all come in, y'all need to hear this too. Because as I speak to his heart, the issue with his heart is a common heart issue. Then he starts to lay it out. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what profit does a man gain if he gains the whole world and, and forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. See, in Peter's mind, if Jesus is meant to suffer, die, be rejected, what happens to me as a follower? That's why Jesus has to go this direction. Jesus was able to see that Peter's heart condition was not one that was uncommon to the disciples, not one that was uncommon to the crowd, neither is it one that's uncommon to me and you. Peter wanted to avoid suffering at all costs. His heart condition was self-preservation. And Peter lived this out to the T. Even though this happens and Jesus told him it must happen, and Jesus rebukes him, when everything goes down, Peter tries to stop it again and pulls out his sword. Remember? Even though Jesus told him it must happen, he got rebuked hardly when, 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 he, when he came up against them. When it goes down, Peter does the same thing again, pulls out his sword. And then later on, Peter was the one swearing up and down, I don't know the man. Listen, self-preservation in his heart is the idolatry of self. It seeks to make self the most important thing at all times, needing to be protected and defended, even at the cost of damaging relationships with others and primarily God. This is us trying to protect me all the time. After he says this, in 9-1 he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who would not taste death, death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, now some commentaries say that what he's talking about right here is um, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. Other commentaries say, well, he's talking about in a couple chapters later, there'll be this transfiguration. Some say he's talking about his, his, his return after his death, burial, and resurrection, and he leaves. He's but... I believe 9 and 1 is in sync with the rest of these verses and talking about how when Jesus heals spiritual blindness, it makes it possible to see the kingdom of God coming with power now. The illusion is thinking that the kingdom of God is, is yet to come to some later date and miss the fact that it's present now. That's the illusion. Jesus always talked about the kingdom of God as one that was already here but yet coming. One that he constantly is calling people to live in now, but yet preparing to live in for eternity. This is how he talks about the kingdom of God. 
And since the start of his ministry, we have, we've seen countless displays of power. Woman touches the hem of his garment and is healed instantly from something she'd been dealing with for 12 years. The first time they've seen demons being cast out is during Jesus' ministry. Power displayed left and right. So if the kingdom of God has already presented itself in Christ and power is obviously being displayed, then the only thing left is for those he has called to see it as it continues to come throughout time, culminating with his return. To that account, he guarantees they will see it. They will see the king. They will see the kingdom before they die. Emphasis on some, because some just won't. And this reality spurs trust inside of my heart, not for myself, not for my own actions, but for him. I can preach a message like this and, and trust that it's not my job to make it seek into somebody's heart. I can trust that every one of our loved ones and everyone that we know and, and, and even don't know that God has called from the beginning of time will see him and respond to his kingship and his kingdom, respond to him in their lifetime as a result of his effectual call. See, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is for God to heal you of your spiritual blindness and reveal to you the reality of Jesus as king of a kingdom that overlaps both the spiritual and the natural world. You have to see this. That's why you'll accept him. That's why you'll, you'll, you'll call out to him because he's opened your eyes to see this reality right here. Let me get to the application. Here's the application of everything that we're hearing. Application point number one. And the, the band, you can come now. Application point number one. Know that your vision is blurry. Know this. Know that your vision is blurry. The blind man wasn't always blind. The fact that he was able to, to tell that I could see people, they sort of look like trees, means that he knows how trees look, which means that at some point in time he was able to see trees. So his, his, his blindness wasn't something he was born with. It was something that progressed over time some way, shape, or form. But the issue with us is that we're born spiritually blind. We don't have a level of clarity or vision to compare our blurriness to. So a lot of times we make the mistake just because we can see something, we think that something is it in, in its entirety, and it's not. A lot of times we make the mistake of mistaking our blurriness for clarity. And we have to humble ourselves constantly with the reality that no matter how long you've been saved, no matter what your position is, no matter how your walk in Christ is, you see blurry. And because people don't realize they see blurry, they walk in arrogance and pride. They don't turn around and say, let me come to somebody for help. They say, I got this. They don't rely on people that God has put inside of their lives because I got this. They don't realize, man, I know I think I see sort of good, but the reality is my vision is way more blurry than I actually think. Let me come together with the other people of God that love me and that can lead me. Help to share some things that I probably didn't even think about. In 1 Corinthians 13 and 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part 
then I shall know fully, even if I've been fully known. Application point number two. Trust God with the process. Trust God with the process. Not you, not your work, not how hard and everything. Trust God with the process. I love this scripture because when they brought the blind man to Jesus, Jesus held his hand and walked him out of the city. A lot of people overlook that. But I love it because it tells me that Jesus is holding my hand through every step of this walk, every single step. He didn't have to do that. He, he could have just said, I hail. He could have done his whole demonstration without even touching the man. But he wanted to hold his hand and walk with him. I mean, any single time that Jesus heals somebody and lays hands on them, always know that's because he wants to feel the touch of your skin against his skin. We know that he's spoken and, and people that was dead have come back to life. So why does he need to touch you to heal your eyesight? He wants to. This is the God that we serve, the compassion that he has. Trust him with the process. Examine. Number three. Examine your hearts for idols. Examine your heart for idols. What resources have I become to depend on in place of the resource giver? In what ways have I been rejecting the truth of God and the reality of who he is? How have I been serving myself? Self-preservation, doing everything that I can to avoid suffering at any cost. Doing everything I can to keep protecting me, keep protecting me, even at the cost of hindering relationships with people that love me and God himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for who you is, how great, how perfect you always show yourself to be, Lord. Though we turn our hearts away from you constantly, over and over again. Though in the midst of trials and tribulations and sufferings and we forget how great you've been to us inside the past, how good you've been to us inside the past and we think that we have to rely on our own self and rely on our own resources to make it happen when we forget about the resource giver. And your word said, if I try to protect myself, I will lose myself. You're saying that because you're saying, I got you. When something is perfect and ready, if you try to do more, you just mess things up. You're saying, trust in me. I got you. Lord, I ask that you allow these truths to echo inside of our hearts, Lord. That you bring sight to the spiritually blind and you cause us to run towards you. Saying, Lord, I need you. More than ever before, open my eyes, open my heart, Lord, I need you. I've been trying to protect myself all this time. I've just been jacking things up. I've been trying to avoid suffering like 
you're not holding my hand all the way through. Lord, I ask that you will speak to us, keep us, and allow your word to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're entering into a, a portion of our service. It's a portion that's, that's for the believer. Those of us that say, I see you, Lord. I, I, I may not see you with full vision, but I see you enough to say, I need to trust you. And then you turn around and you're saying, I spread a table of fellowship out for you that spreads throughout eternity. This is a portion of service that's communion for the believer, the person that's accepted God is out of their life. The bread represents his body broken for us and the cup represents his blood that continues to flow for us. Off to the side over here, we'll have people over here that are willing to spend time praying with you. You know that, man, I need some prayer. I need to see God. I need to go to his throne and, and, and God wants us to come and fellowship together with each other. There'll be people over here that's willing to pray with you and lead you to his throne. Then after that, lead you in communion. For the rest of us, if you say, man, I don't need no prayer, I got this. I don't know about that, but come straight up the center aisle. You pick up the cup. Inside one cup, you have the bread, and inside another cup, you have the juice. They're layered on top of each other. We want you to spend time praying to God yourself. So you'll grab your cup, you'll grab your bread, and you'll go back to your seats and spend time seeking God's face yourself, asking him to show you areas of your heart that you have been rejecting him, areas of your heart that are hardened. Pray with each other. Fathers, lead your family. Brothers and sisters, come together in prayer. And then afterwards, take communion and let's worship and serve our God together. The tables are open. If you want to pray, there's people up here to pray with you. Let's serve.